Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This is the second of a two-part series with Dr. Mira Dakin Sagopal, who grew up in California and is now a citizen of India, where she works as an obstetrician and gynecologist in the rural countryside. Part one of our visit with Dr. Mira Dakin Sagopal is available on our website, www.radiocurious.org. And now we continue our conversation in part two with Dr. Dakin Satgopal. So tell us more about the traditional birth process. After the baby is born, the uh, first concern actually, usually the baby is all right and cries soon. And all the main concern is getting the placenta to come out. And placenta normally would come out with a few contractions within five or maybe ten minutes. Um, But if the placenta doesn't come out, then uh, sometimes this same herb is used again to bring on the contractions, uh, harder contractions. Sometimes the hair of the woman is taken, a tuft of the hair is put in the back of her throat so that she retches and uh, it increases the pressure in her belly. So the placenta is pushed out. What happens if the placenta does not come out so easily? Sometimes the, uh, a small broom, a small hand broom that's used to, in cleaning the house is taken and is put on the belly of the woman at the top between her chest and her belly. And uh, she bends over a bit, and uh, the dai uh, is, supplicates the... Uh, there, she has a relationship with uh, a goddess named Soshtimata, or Soshtima, uh, who is a goddess of reproduction, and basically. And she, uh, she is imp- uh, implored to release the placenta. Uh, and this... Uh, this broom on the belly also is a kind of um, it kind of, again it's a kind of a mirroring it it is a um, stimulus of the downward moving energy the watt uh, 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 which uh, should bring out the placenta so these are all methods and if it still doesn't come out the dyes are actually known to at the same time as calling upon soshtima they will put in a hand and see where exactly the placenta is and may easily move it out or may actually go inside and uh, separate the placenta very gently from the inside of the womb. Inside of the uterus. They have been known to do that, yeah. We'll be studying some of this more. but. And this is by the hand of the midwife as opposed to a tool? or No, no, it's the hand of the midwife. And... Uh, it's rarely done, but it may be done to, to save the woman if there's no other option. So tell us about the postures uh, or the positions that the mother is in during the time of close to final labor and the actual birthing moments. Well, the posture is uh, usually a squatting. It's almost always a squatting posture, uh, holding onto the side of a, a cot, and a woman may be sitting on the cot and holding her uh, side and her back, and the midwife often sitting behind her. Or she may be squatting with a woman holding her behind and the midwife squatting in front of her, m- may or may not be sitting on something, a piece of wood or 
something like a stool. And sometimes she might take the kneeling posture of you know, kneeling. And uh, this is often used if, uh, if it's known that the baby is uh, going to be born as a, as a breech baby. The back end kind of uh, kneeling posture has been used. And one of our dais, who was about eight years old, very enthusiastically told us about how she had delivered one of her own babies in that posture, being helped by her two sister-in-laws, but she delivered in that posture. And generally, in the birthing uh, time, who is present? Generally, the the women of the house, two, uh, say two women of the household are usually present with the dai, one or two women, or the dai may have another assistant with her. And the baby's father? Baby's father is almost always not present. Now, some parts, particularly in tribal regions, the baby's father may be present. And in one of the areas where we're doing our full-fledged study, there are male dais, there are male midwives. And that's a tribal area of northwest Maharashtra. Do they have uh, the same uh, training beginning at a very at the very young age as uh, their sisters uh, may seven eight nine the male dies yes we don't know yet actually we've just met some of them but we haven't started the research in that area yet so the baby is born the placenta is not out uh, the umbilicus is still attached the die and the mother are working to get the placenta out. Where's the baby? Uh, the baby is uh, near the mother. Uh, it may be in a, in a winnowing basket, or it may be on a cloth on the floor, right near the mother, because the umbilical cord is, in fact, only about 18 inches long or so, not more than so two feet. So it feet. can't stray. So it can't stray. And... Uh, the problem is it rarely happens that the baby might not breathe for one reason or another. So these measures to get the placenta out soon happen. The, the uh, abdomen of the mother is also massaged. The belly is massaged. And uh, the placenta is taken out. And uh, along with uh, beating a metal plate near the ear of the baby, or sprinkling some cold water on it, if it still doesn't revive, then the placenta is very important for reviving the baby. Tell us how. The placenta is considered the, the life seat of the life force, the vital force. And in some way, uh, the placenta would be heated or stimulated. Uh, we found several ways that the people, uh, that dice stimulate the placenta. But the most common ways are heating it in warm water, immersing it in sort of pumping it in warm water or lifting it in warm water, or heating it over, over hot coals, or burning some grass all around it, and the cord is massaged toward the baby, and the baby uh, comes to life. The baby starts uh, first moving um, around the mouth and then taking breaths. And then it may cry after a little while. The massaging of the placenta is to draw the elements of the placenta out of the placenta, down the umbilicus, into the newborn. 
Yes, it's not clear what exactly goes, but the Dais all uh, uh, describe this uh, in different ways. They call it uh, prana, uh, or they'll call it um, jan, which is life, uh, prana, which is like a life breath. Um, they even call it sas, which means which is the word that's used for the breath which we breathe from through our mouth and nose. And they'll say the sas goes through the cords. It's quite a kind of a sophisticated understanding, but it's an energy uh, that flows. Uh, physiologically speaking, we don't know what it is, but um, we have found this same. Um, technique, basically, of stimulating the placenta to revive a newborn baby uh, in 18 states of India, uh, reported anecdotally, uh, in many parts of some of those states, and uh, many parts we haven't even found yet. Also, we found it in surrounding countries, in Bangladesh and in Burma, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, we found reports of it, and we found it in, uh, uh, reported from various countries in Africa. The stimulation of the placenta. Placenta to revive a newborn. And we found it in uh, South America, in Colombia and uh, Mexico, reported uh, from, uh, in a book and a PhD thesis. In your pilot project, or in the full project, which will begin in, in October of 2010, do you have any uh, data or plans to investigate difficulties in birth? Yes. Actually, I'd like to say first that uh, the Dais, uh, the traditional midwives, are the, are the first to say that they really need a functioning and uh, effective backup system. Uh, which would be provided by the government through hospital birth care uh, when they need it. And uh, that's the thing that's been lacking. But uh, the fact is that uh, functional linkages between the dais and the uh, healthcare system have not ever been made. And the dais have often had no other option but to do whatever they could in a complication. And so so far, what we've learned is what they have told us spontaneously in interviews that were more general, that didn't probe into the complications. Uh, but uh, they've told us about handling breach deliveries and uh, handling, uh, say, face, uh, face deliveries. I guess face presentation is the right term for that, uh, where uh, the baby's head is coming down uh, in extension, not in flexion, the way it should be in a normal vertex birth, uh, where they have managed to convert the extended uh, head into a vertex presentation by a combination of massaging the belly and uh, also manipulating, moving the head up from below. And the vertex presentation is with the face down. Yes, with the, with the top of the head presenting and uh, the face in full flexion with the chin against the chest. As opposed to the forehead presenting. As of, opposed to the forehead or even the face can present, which presents a wider diameter than is possible to deliver through the, the pelvis. So it just it has to be flexed, and uh, normally it's considered in uh, medical terms that a cesarean birth is necessary 
to complete the birth. A cesarean operation is necessary. Is it a fair presumption that a cesarean is not a um, viable alternative in the remote areas where many of the dyas practice? That's generally true. So it's very important that the dyas are, you know, with all their understanding and their uh, their abilities and their skills, it's very important that they're, they're intra- integrated into the uh, the childbirth care system so that they can help in detecting the um, the, the risk factors, uh, the women who will need cesarean intervention, definitely. So then the problem is the distance from the home birth to the medical facility and getting the woman there and the, and the newborn. Yes, the dis- that's the problem. Throughout India, there are there are primary health centers and there's like rural hospitals where uh, women can be transported if you know if the arrangements are made in advance. They can go before or they can be ready to go if there is a is transport available. And in many uh, in many of the states now, there uh, there are emergency transport vehicles. Uh, because of the rural health, the National Rural Health Mission, which weren't there before. You're listening to Radio Curious in the second of a two-part series with Dr. Mira Dakin Sadgopal, an obstetrician and gynecologist living and working in rural India. I'm Barry Vogel. Tell us about pain, the pain of the contraction and uh, the child coming through the, the pelvic opening, how it's perceived, how it's treated? Well, the word, kind of the word for contractions is generally the word, same word as pain uh, in almost every area, although not always. But I, I think it's true that it's more, I don't want to put words into their mouth, though. Well, your observations... I was going to say that the the dyes all say that pain was uh, taken much more matter-of-factly in in, uh, previous times, and now the younger women tend to be more afraid of pain. And uh, so they would like to avoid the pain. As women get educated, they would like to avoid pain. But in among the women in the traditional communities who have been less educated, pain is something that they took more in stride, and many of them still do, and we'd like to understand that better. You'd like to understand how they accept the pain and take it in stride? Yeah, I think you, I think you could say that. <laughs> Tell us about the potential tearing of the perineum and uh, whether there's an episiotomy or not Oh, and how that's dealt with. The dyes say that that they rarely have tears in the perineum. Uh, Of course, they don't do any kind of uh, cut, uh, which is in a hospital setting is called an episiotomy, nor are there any stitches. They do. They use oil and uh, and heat, heating their hands on the fire and with oil and uh, massaging the uh, the birth opening 
um, before the birth of the baby and uh, then as the baby comes out and the the they uh, they feel that they are preparing the woman's birth passage for the birth and that if they do it right that there won't be tears they're telling us that they hardly ever have tears so when we do our long-term research we'll be looking into these kinds of things to see what the actual outcomes are so tell us your role in establishing the research protocols and and what you're looking for um I'm one of the six people who are known as the Jiva Project Shepherds, and uh, we are responsible for guiding the research. We have taken, we, among us, we uh, comprise a certain amount of expertise in public health and in biomedicine, uh, ethnographic research, uh, Ayurvedic medicine, etc., and as well as maternity care. I am the uh, principal investigator in the project with the help of the Jiva Shepherds. And uh, we are also uh, taking guidance from authorities in uh, qualitative research methodology. Tell us about your medical background and training before you uh, became involved in the Jiva project. Oh, my training was uh, in the Grant Medical College in uh, Bombay uh, in the uh, early 70s. And uh, I uh, got the MBBS degree, that's um, Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery. And uh, after my one year of internship uh, following that uh, training, I uh, worked in Madhya Pradesh in Central India uh, for about 16 years, and of which part of that time was working in the primary health center, uh, which is the government, uh, the government primary health center, and uh, there I established a women's clinic for some years, which uh, was a weekly clinic for women, and then I worked with a group of landless laborers in an organization, which through an initiative of the women, we started a a, a kind of very basic community health care and essential medicines distribution facility. So we we ran clinics through that initiative. After a number of years, I moved to Pune, and uh, then I started doing work in fertility awareness education. Uh, for which I had the Ashoka Foundation Fellowship. And do you work in birth control? Uh, We didn't call it birth control. One of the uh, applications of fertility awareness is um, skillful contraception, um, which doesn't depend necessarily on uh, artificial intervention. Uh, but is not against, uh, you know, things like diaphragms and condoms, particularly the, the barrier methods of contraception. Uh, but yes, uh, it did have to do with birth control. Is there hormonal uh, intervention, pills, or...? Yeah, we, we, we felt that uh, fertility awareness education, if uh, it's available for y- young women, particularly 
uh, girls growing up and along with the knowledge for boys who become men that uh, they could possibly uh, avoid invasive contraception, avoid the use of hormones which uh, might disturb their menstrual cycles. Basically, we saw fertility awareness education as an issue of people's science as well as uh, women's empowerment. But it very much uh, also should involve young men and, and men and women together. Does it at this time? Not as much as it should. <laughs> How about severing the tubes, either for a tubal ligation or a vasectomy? Is that a method that is used? That is uh, very widespread in India. It's the most uh, uh, sterilization of women by tubectomy, by uh, tying and severing the 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 uh, uterine tubes is the most common form of uh, contraception in India. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting that many of the women who, uh, who learned fertility awareness had already been sterilized because they could learn the, the, the uh, tying of the tubes and severing of the tubes doesn't interfere with the fertility cycle in terms of the natural uh, hormonal cycle and the changes that happen in the in the uterus, particularly the cervix, to release the the mucus, which is one of the most important signs of fertility. So it was kind of uh, poignant and kind of ironic that women who had been sterilized were able to see their uh, the, the the fertile signs uh, later on when they started having regular cycles because they weren't conceiving. The the ovum didn't pass into the uterus through the fallopian tube. Right. So as, just as they were ovulating, they would see these signs of and feel these signs of fertility, particularly the cer cervical mucus, uh, vaginal mucus, and they would, uh, in fact, uh, ironically, get alarmed that this is this might be a disease. And uh, uh, in some cases, I had women coming to me to be cured of that. And it was sad to tell them that this is a this is your sign of your fertility, and that you know they re they themselves realized that if they had uh, learned this before, then maybe they wouldn't have had to be sterilized. Also, implying and saying that their husbands, some in some cases, their husbands would very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, be willing to abstain from sex during those days of fertility. Even after sterilization? No, not after, well, no, not after sterilization. So that is one of the, one of the things which uh, they've noticed, that after sterilization they have less control over their sexuality. And uh, the other thing is that uh, men also uh, know this sign of uh, fertility from the, uh, the female uh, animals like cows and buffaloes and goats. Uh, because it's important to know that sign uh, in order to uh, see that the cows and buffaloes become pregnant. You mentioned before that uh, the dyes, the midwives, uh, had their own children. Have you um, given birth to children? Oh, no, I haven't. <laughs> Do you find that that has been any way any barrier in your communication with the people with whom you work? 
somehow it's not been a barrier. I don't know. I think maybe it's because of the other ways that I make connections with women, I guess. <laughs> I'm curious for a person who uh, was born and uh, grew up, spent uh, your early years and your teenage years in California, what motivated you to move to India and become a citizen of India? At the time of that I left uh, the United States, the Vietnam War was in it, it was being pursued by the United States. There was a strong student movement against it. Uh, which I was somewhat a part of, but I felt that I would like to go far away to another culture, another country, which had a different perspective on the world. I felt somehow that uh, uh, this country, uh, which I was living in, had a distorted, a distorted perception of its importance. The United States did. Yes. And it couldn't be that there were so many countries in the world and so many different kinds of people. And uh, I felt that I would like to be on that side. Well, Dr. Mira Dakin Sangopal, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, uh, can you tell us about a eureka moment uh, that has occurred in your vast life experience that stays with you? Um, the, yes, I I think it was that moment when I first saw that baby uh, reviving. That, that baby had uh, been born through a very, very difficult prolonged birth and uh, must have been very stressed. Uh, but when it revived and started to breathe, uh, then I, I felt that uh, this must be something just uh, wonderful, something like... I don't know, something by amazing. The, <laughs> by heating the placenta and massaging the umbilical cord? Yes. <laughs> and what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? <laughs> I would like to live it well, uh, live it uh, in rhythm with the earth, uh, not use up more than is my share. And finally, is there a, a book that you could recommend? Uh, yes, it's a book that I've just finished. It's called Anila's Journey, and it's by Mary Finn. Uh, it's a recent book. Uh, it's Walker Books. The author is an Irish woman, uh, and uh, she's uh, written about the life of a woman uh, named Anila Tandy. I don't know to what extent it's fictionalized, but she lived around in the 1700s in uh, eastern India, around Calcutta, and she was an illustrator of birds and uh, quite a, a wonderful, strong, and sensitive personality. And uh, I think the writer has done a wonderful job in capturing this life. Dr. Mira Dakin Sangopal, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> You have just heard Dr. Mira Dakin Sagotpal, a native of California and now a citizen of India. She is a practicing obstetrician and gynecologist studying traditional and current midwifery practices in India. The book Dr. Dakin Sagotpal recommends is Anila's Journey by Mary Finn. 
There are over 380 Radio Curious archive editions on our website at radiocurious.org, where all programs are free to download, copy, share, or rebroadcast as you wish. We'd like you to use the whole program and ask that you give credit to Radio Curious. You may also subscribe to our podcast and receive new programs as they are produced. Click the podcast link at radiocurious.org. Let us know if you need a CD. We can make one for you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail may be sent to Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our associate producer. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us. 